Schlock here on KPFT HD3. Thank you for listening. Um, I am your host, Jay Goodson Dodd, also known as Jake for the sake of brevity. I'm not rhyming it anymore. Aww. My rap career has been cut off at the knees. And with me, as always, is Meredith. Hello. Hello. So uh, today we are going to be talking about uh, a Netflix original film called Mute, directed by Duncan Jones. It's going to be a good discussion because for the first time since this show started on the air, both me and Meredith did uh, wound, wound up not liking the film. So that's a new one for us. It um, hurts, too, because we wanted to. Yeah, we wanted to like it. There was so much about it that uh, fell within our wheelhouse, but it just it didn't neon, happen. It was noir. It was Paul Rudd with a dorky mustache. Like, it was tailor-made for us. Yeah, it really was. But some things just didn't work, and we'll get into that in uh, a little bit. But I know, Meredith, you wanted to start the show by uh, making a small announcement related to KPFT-style activities. Yes, we are currently doing a fund drive. So if you are looking to donate, please go online to kpft.org to get information on how to give. Uh, if you enjoy our program, if you do enjoy other programs on the station, and you should because they're very good, check it out. Give a donation. Help keep us all on the air. Yeah, and that's uh, that's definitely something worth contributing to, um, even if it's uh, even if it's a small donation. Every little bit helps, um, and I believe it will be going on throughout the month of March. Yes. So uh, if you can't make it today and you can't make it tomorrow, sometime before the end of the month, definitely give us a call, make a pledge, uh, help out your local radio station. All right, so let's get into it. Let's uh, let's dive right into this. Let's uh, start talking about. Duncan Jones' latest directorial effort, Mute. Okay. Um, I want to preface this by saying that, yes, in, we did want to like this movie. There's um, a lot of things that I will go to bat for sight unseen, and I feel like Duncan Jones is one of those directors that I, I've been trying to support ever since my eyes uh, first feast upon Moon all those years ago, because that is... Um, probably one of the strongest debut feature films I've ever seen from a filmmaker. Um, Moon was beautiful. It was an amazing film. I, honestly, I want to rewatch it based off of <laughs> based off of watching this. Well, and on the show, we do speak a lot about streamlined storytelling, and I think it's a great example. Oh, yeah. that Very, very good point. Um, and, I mean, I, obviously this episode isn't going to be us talking about Moon because I, I'd need to do, do a rewatch in order to fully extrapolate what I love about that film. Um, but looking at Duncan Jones and looking at his filmography since then, uh, came out very, very strong with Moon, one of the most self-assured, wonderful pieces of debut filmmaking that I could possibly put my finger on. Uh, followed it up with uh, a big-budget studio feature he did, Source Code, which I I felt wasn't as strong as Moon, but I felt like it was a pretty decent film. I enjoyed it, uh, and uh, my wife will watch anything that has Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, and then, of course, uh, a film that was previously covered 
on the previous iteration of this podcast was Warcraft. If I recall, I was the only one that had actually watched it. I watched it. It was... I just fell asleep during the film. <laughs> In that film's defense, Ruth Nega and Dominic Cooper were pretty great. Upon waking up and taking the time to watch it in full, I will agree that uh, that film had a lot that I actually enjoyed about it, which I feel like I shouldn't admit that because it's something that people are going to mock me for until the end of time. But there are things about Warcraft that I liked. Just about everybody who was mo-capped in that film seemed to be having just a blast of a time. They seemed to be enjoying themselves quite uh, quite a bit. And they did with the roles what I felt uh, was necessary, and I felt like they did a good job. Everybody who was not motion-captured looked completely out of it and had no, looked like they had no idea what they were doing, didn't want to be there. So it was just an odd mishmash of, oh, j just disparate elements that didn't come together cohesively, which I think is just... It's a death blow for any film. And I don't think that all of that is necessarily on the feet of Duncan Jones so much as it is the type of movie that that was. I also feel like the movie came way too late. Well, possibly because I mean, when was the when was the absolute peak of World of Warcraft's like popularity? Because probably around like two thousand eight, two thousand nine ish. There's still obviously I, I releasing know the, I know there's still, expansion there's still packs. A, and I know things. there's still a contingent that plays World of Warcraft, right. and uh, although that's you know the new type of games are kind of phasing that out. It's the same thing that happened. I mean, World of Warcraft basically, uh, in effect, killed EverQuest, and uh, it's the same way that now, like uh, you know, Overwatch is a big thing, and it's pushed other first-person shooters out. Um, and I think mobile gaming has also and mobile, yeah, and mobile pushed gaming, out obviously. a lot because I remember. Uh, my senior year in high school whenever my friends were super duper into World of Warcraft and this was uh, around uh, the middle of 2004 going into 2005 when that was kind of a big deal and I, I think that coming out with a film like Warcraft in you know post 2010 was always going to be a hard sell right and I feel like also, that wasn't helped by the fact that it had such a long and troubled production in that it took a good two years to even get it to where it needed to be because they announced that film I think in 2009 or 2010 right. so the fact that it took so long to get to screen is probably what hobbled it um, if we're going to look at what I think didn't work for Mute um, if you've listened to the show in the past and I know there are a few of you who actually listen so shout out to our regular listeners um if you've listened to the show in the past, you know that we have a pretty uh, we have a pretty hardline stance when it comes to sci-fi, and that hardline stance is sci-fi is wonderful, and it's this beautiful, all-encompassing thing that can be anything that you want. However, I will say that if you are going to work within the realm of sci-fi, you should probably be doing it for a reason that goes outside of just I like the aesthetic, which is kind of what I felt in this film is that it was it was less a I want to make a sci-fi film as I want to utilize the sci-fi aesthetic without doing anything with that, with the tropes and workings of the genre itself. Because I feel like you could take this film and transplant it into literally any other time period and it would still work. Um, which, if you look at the development history originally, it was supposed to be like a gangster film. And then it was trend. they were like, well, maybe let's move it because it was going to be like a, like a snatched 
lock, stock, and two smoking barrels type situation where it was a London gangster film. And then they said, well, no, let's move it to Tokyo. And they were talking about getting maybe Ken Watanabe to play a character in the film. But then that fell through. Then it was going to be an animated film. And then it eventually ended up being what it is now. And I think that disparate, we don't know what it needs to be. And you know, coming from the genesis of it can be anything, the sci-fi trappings of it just didn't work for me. I was going to make a terrible joke about how technically everything is sci-fi to the Amish, but that's really not true. No, and I, the, I, I love that just apropos of nothing, I get, an, I get a message on Facebook from Meredith that says, and one more thing, this film gets so many things wrong about the Amish. And it I does. And if, it, if there were a poster for this film, I would want that to be the pull quote. And it's funny because... Um, but I think that's probably why the 20 minutes into the future setting why that why they they it's the disconnect is not us looking at possible technological futures it is an amish person looking at what's a very probable yeah and technological it, future and the only thing that we're really lacking from the movie if i recall is the flying cars yeah and we have the drones already yeah, that we, do we, deliveries. Have, we have the drones we have, we have touch screens we mm -hmm. have uh we've made huge leaps and strides with um, artificial prosthetics and stuff like that. So right. the sci-fi elements of it could be stripped away almost entirely and the film would be almost exactly the same. Much of the sci-fi elements are really just mainstreaming what we already have, with the exception of the flying cars. Yeah, with the exception of the flying cars. And it, I feel like it was almost the flying cars sci-fi aesthetic was done simply to create sort of a weird uh, compare-contrast dichotomy type thing with the sort of 1950s aesthetic of the cars that were going around. Like you saw like some, you know, uh, 50s and 40s style Mercedes-Benzes on the streets. And it was it was admittedly an interesting aesthetic. And one thing that I will say is... Well, look at that. That harkens back to Brazil. Yeah, it does. Look I, at Brazil's... I got... Extremely retrofuturist aesthetic. I, I I honestly felt like yes, there was a, an extreme um, homaging of Brazil in certain scenes of the like, especially there's uh, one scene uh, in particular that I was like, this looks like it was stripped from Terry Gilliam's playbook, and there were lots of. Uh, camera setups and just movements that I'm like, okay, this looks like something out of a Terry Gilliam film. Also, kind of reminded me of Dark City. Dark City is another one, uh, which which is much harder sci-fi though. Dark City is a very, very good hard sci-fi movie that I need to revisit because it's been a long time since I've seen it. Um, I feel like the last time I picked it up was I picked it up whenever it came out on Blu-ray, and I watched it and I was thinking to myself, like, this film really needs to be more regarded than it really is. The problem was is that it came out right before, before the, the Matrix. Matrix. Yeah, mm -hmm. but I feel like Dark City, a lot of the things that we attribute to The Matrix should probably be given credit to Alex Proyas and what he did with that film. And, you know, we talked about it's like the, this idea that cinema has to be groundbreaking and we listed The Matrix as one of those groundbreaking pieces of film. And it's funny because some of the ground that they broke was not actually broke by them, but a year earlier with Dark City, which is just one of those weird little intricacies of, you know, being a movie nerd that will uh, both, you know, entertain and frustrate you to no end. But I think there were enough differences between The Matrix and Dark City oh, yeah. to the, where the, the elements that were groundbreaking in The Matrix still stand yeah, on still, their own. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely... I'm not saying that The Matrix isn't groundbreaking. I'm just saying that, you know, credit where credit's due. Of and, course. Um, nobody is going to accuse something like Mute of being groundbreaking. And I think that one of the things that a lot of people have to understand, and this is something that we've discussed previously with regard to the way that we view entertainment through streaming media is that 
um, maybe it's time to examine what a film needs to do. Like, what is the watermark by which we judge success for these type of films? Because I'll be perfectly honest, it didn't, this did not offend my sensibilities and feel like a waste of time the way that, let's say, uh, Bright did. Um, and I feel like if we're using it as a watermark, personally, I feel like it's more assured and more confident than something like Cloverfield Paradox. I feel like it's more confident in itself. I just don't feel like it connected It connected quite as well with me. It's because I think the story was structurally all over the place. I, yeah, I feel like if, there, if there's one thing that I will say about the film, um, the, the main problems with it, uh, aside from uh, some issues that I we'll get into a little bit later on is that it felt very first drafty. Um, it felt mm -hmm. like, and which I feel like there's no reason for that considering that from what I understand and what research I've done on the film, it's gone through an extensive pre-production and prepping process. So over the course of the years that it's being prepared, you'd think that at some point the script would have been polished a little more, but the script in this film, the, the best way that I can describe it is um, to use a word that I uh, apply to many things that has no meaning and yet somehow is completely understandable, is this script is wonky. It feels like, uh, it feels as if it's not aligned, it feels unbalanced, it feels... If you diagram the plot... It goes in circles and not in a compelling way that makes you want to keep going. Not not, it doesn't, not in the inception, we need to go deeper kind of right, way. Right, it doesn't Just, build any kind of sense of suspense. That's I think that is hitting the nail on the head, is that this is ultimately a mystery, because while it has the trappings of sci-fi, it, it finds its footing more in film noir. And as someone who absolutely loves film noir, um, I did not enjoy certain elements of this film because they didn't work within the framework. They didn't work within the established rules of that genre. And I'm one of those people who will always say that, hey, we can do different things. We can try to remix and reorganize and try to break the mold. But also there are some things that work because whenever you're putting together a narrative, whenever you're trying to put together story structure, that's the thing that works. And to do a mystery like this and to do a mystery where you want to keep the audience on the edge of their seat guessing as well, you need to make sure that your audience surrogate, your audience point of view character, you need to make sure that the audience never knows more than they do. Otherwise, it just gets frustrating. And so the fact that we were able to see things and like, hey, dummy, why aren't you picking up on the obvious? It made it really, really frustrating as an audience member to watch. And there was the big reveal toward the end about where uh, Nadira's body was hidden, where out of nowhere comes the exposition dump. Oh, by the way, her ex-husband did it because he was jealous that she was trying to get custody of their kid. Yeah, it's... And it was just told in a flashback. But whose flashback? It was... Yeah, it's it's it didn't quite work. The the it they took they took some narrative leaps that didn't work and didn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, and one of the things too is if you're going to if you're gonna if you're gonna be writing a mystery and ostensibly this whole thing is a mystery, you need to you need to make it feel like your audience is going to get some sort of payoff. It needs to have some sort of. Oomph. And I felt right. like this mystery, the resolution had no oomph. 
it was just it was like it was just like a sad balloon being slowly deflated it's not a good nor ends with someone popping a balloon and scaring the bejesus out of you and going oh how did i not see that coming it's like imagine like think of the emotional and visceral gut wrench that gut punch that comes with something like chinatown versus the of this and yeah, nothing, it's night and day. Nothing. No, something doesn't necessarily have to be unpredictable to be good. No, but I mean, at we, least we've, talked, it, we've right. talked about how we've you know, predictability is not necessarily always a bad thing. But in this particular case, I don't feel like the predictability worked in its favor. No, it certainly didn't because it didn't feel like the predictability was meant for the audience. It just meant it just felt like an unfortunate byproduct of the writing. And, you know, I'm not one of those people who is going to say that uh, writing a mystery is easy or that maintaining no. or that maintaining suspense is easy. Um, if you have ever read my books, some of you are like probably throwing things well, at the speaker right now going I mean, like shut up you hack but at the same time i know that whenever you are banking on selling a film around the idea of a central mystery you probably should put more effort into making sure that that element of your film works right and i, I think the best description that i had is i, I watched it with uh ryan terry a, a local comedian with uh, trek wars awesome stuff and uh we watched it together and we spent maybe an hour afterward talking about it. And I think he had probably the best description of anyone that I've discussed this movie with. He said that it felt like you got two breadcrumbs before being smacked in the face with a baguette. Okay. That actually, that feels right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, there's a lot that I'll say about this film. Um, I will, I will argue that... There are parts of it that I greatly enjoyed. Um, the cinematography did work for me. It's beautiful. Um, I did appreciate the five-second cameo by the Basset Hound in the third act. Um, <laughs> I appreciated Paul Rudd's mustache. Um, well, how could you not? I appreciated the fact that I made it a whole, I think, hour and 15 minutes into the film until I realized that Justin Thoreau was not Luke Wilson. Um, I appreciate. <laughs> I appreciate. <laughs> I'm not joking. I didn't realize that was Justin Thoreau. I thought it was Luke Wilson. You... I'm like, Luke Wilson's really worked on his voice work because that's a different accent. And then I was like, oh, that's, oh. It's the nose. The nose gave it away that it was Justin Thoreau. But honestly, every once in a while, there were some, if I hadn't known going into it that that was Justin Thoreau, there were some, some scenes where that were framed and I was like, Luke Wilson, your body double. That's yeah, it's, it's kind of it was kind of, and I felt like the casting in this was excellent. Um, I will say this is the best I have seen out of Alexander Skarsgård since his uh, star-making performance as Mikas in Zoolander. So I have to say that I, I have a lot of very strong opinions in all caps about casting non-disabled actors and disabled roles. That's a discussion for another day because it could take up an entire episode. Trust me. However. Mm -hmm. Skarsgård is masterful at micro expressions. Yeah, he uh, he did. I thought he still did beautiful work. He did. He did really well. And it's you know I I am by no means an accomplished or trained thespian. I I was a theater geek in high school, and I took a couple semesters of acting classes at local community college. But one of the things that I really learned to appreciate is the idea of being able to express through body language and a simple like 
just communicating with your eyes that mm-hmm. that idea of ex- of if you let the emotion show through body language and expression then everything else will follow which he did and i feel like he did such a good job with that and i feel like maybe um if he could do that in every performance from here until the end of his career maybe i would appreciate him more but having really only seen him in terrible movies and terrible tv shows um i think maybe i was more surprised by his range in this than maybe other people were because i know a lot of people loved him for his work in true blood i did not like that absolute dumpster fire of a show um i saw him as uh and then i saw him in the terrible remake of straw dogs he was terrible in that everybody was terrible in that what am i talking about um but see if everyone is terrible then that's a director's problem yeah i feel like that i mean that was a director's problem and a writer's problem, and an actor's problem. That movie was a problem. Um, but here, I felt like he did a very good job. And um, ev- I think everybody did an excellent job with their performance. I felt like the acting felt very... Uh, even. I mean, this is, a, this is a film noir, so there's some heightened elements to it, but I felt like there was some very... Um, honest acting coming from a lot of the different uh, a lot of the different characters it felt very uh it felt very naturalistic in certain ways um paul rudd was absolutely uh, like I, I really liked paul rudd in this um i thought it was interesting because it was uh, as uh, as my wife hey tori uh, as my wife said um this is the only time she's ever watched a film with paul rudd and regardless of his regardless of his character didn't walk away wanting to sleep with him um so i think that that's a testament to the acting ability of paul rudd's mustache that thing belongs in a museum. <laughs> I really want my soundboard up and running so that I can start dropping uh, film quotes into the soundboard. But yeah, I mean, he was he was excellent, and uh, and uh, Luke Wilson Thoreau also played his part to a T. Just so skeevy, so undeniably dirty and filthy. But the way they handled his character was awful and it added so little to the story it and added it added nothing it added nothing it stretched out nothing it stretched out everything there was maybe about 10 minutes of the did you know he's a pedophile did you know he's a pedophile hey did you know he's a pedophile did you know he's a pedophile oh are you shocked to find out that this man's a pedophile i was like no you have literally set this up like we're not shocked at all because you set it up literally in his second was, scene it was about as subtle as a marilyn manson concert um, they did not. I could have seen if they would have, you know, dropped the hints and just been subtle about it. But there was nothing subtle about it. And this goes back into that predictability thing. Right. The fact that we know this about this character, Paul Rudd is hanging around him all the time and seemingly like he's okay with it, but he's not okay with it. So we know that Paul Rudd, as much as he's putting on this, hey, he's an entertaining kind of a goofball character at points, we know that he's a scuzzbag because he's hanging out with this obvious pedophile. So that leads us to know, okay, he's got to have something to do with the whatever. Like, it narratively the choice of how they strung along uh justin thoreau's character did not work for me and it it wasted so much time so much time i feel like a lot of a lot of the narrative in this film there was a lot of wheel spinning and all of that wheel spinning came from scenes that alexander skarsgård was not in. right i would have been fine if the whole movie had just followed him because if you look at classical film noir, if you look at the tropes, you are supposed to follow only your protagonist. Even in something like, in, to show you exactly how uh, how this trope works and how well it suits the genre, look at something like The Big Lebowski. The Big Lebowski is 
a film noir. And there are, I, I think there's one scene in the totality of that film that does not feature uh, Jeff Bridges' character somehow bumbling through the events of the film. It's basically, it's that idea that the lead character knows Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. And it's more and they, effective when you find things out alongside and you, you, And you are finding out exactly what they do. Right. It's it's one of those things that works really, 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 really well for the genre. And it helps to facilitate the narrative. It helps to facilitate the story that you're trying to tell. And I feel like on a structural level, the script here did not know what it was seeking to accomplish. And that's unfortunate because I feel like uh, I feel like Duncan Jones is such a assured, confident filmmaker that looking at this film, I have to wonder, like, you know, what was it that went wrong in the scripting phase? Right. And with with Moon, we know that he can do a stripped down, simplified linear story. Yes. We know that he has these chops. It was it was literally his debut and, and it was beautiful. And I wonder if perhaps maybe that is the fault of people like me um, putting people up on a pedestal and thinking that they have to live up to whatever their potential or their perceived potential is. And it, I mean, it happened. Another good example of who that happened to was M. Night Shyamalan, who, you know, he came out of the gate swinging hard. Every, there, were, there was that, uh, that article that proclaimed him to be the new Spielberg. And then it was just all massive letdowns. And see, the I fact also... of the matter is that he is a capable, assured filmmaker who, while he has had some hiccups along the road in his career, is starting to really find a grasp on what his voice is and what he's seeking to do. And I feel like maybe that time, that lowered expectation, that pressure being taken off of him is what allowed him to grow as a person. And I'm wondering if maybe that isn't what we need to be thinking about with Duncan Jones is, you know, it's like, oh, we thought of him as like, oh, he's this filmmaking prodigy. He comes from the lineage of David Bowie. We should put him on the pedestal and like think that he's going to be the savior of independent film and blah, 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 whatever. I feel like a lot of film nerds did that to him and it's not something that he asked for. I don't feel like that's fair. And like you said, it, it, what it also does, and, I, and this is something we've discussed uh, with Ava DuVernay, and the early, some of the early reviews of uh, Wrinkle and Tie from people that were like, seemed really gleeful oh, yeah. to knock her off the pedestal. Like, it wasn't even like, I didn't like this movie, but we wish her well. It was mostly like, LOL, see, she's not the savior of, of cinema. And it's like, no one really and like, th asked and, her to do this. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to next week when we talk about Wrinkle and Time because I, I just read that book. I have no association with it, and I really want to see the adaptation to see what they do with it because it was funny. Um, you know, I, I try to do research before we do anything if I possibly have the time. And I was researching Wrinkle in Time, and Madeline Lingle, who wrote the original novel back in the 1960s, um, she got to see the first adaptation of Wrinkle in Time that they did back in 2002, mm -hmm. and uh, she absolutely hated it. Like, and with good reason, from what I've heard, that adaptation is just terrible. Um, and it's one of those things where I, I want to see an adaptation of this book done well because I, there was a lot that I could appreciate. Now, I look at Ava DuVernay and I look at her mm -hmm. filmography and I look at what she's done so far. And the thing that I appreciate about her as a filmmaker is that she has a documentarian style, which... I mean, if you look at her filmography, that's what she's really good at is doing documentary style work. Her work in Selma was very documentary like. Mm -hmm. um, and then you look at something like uh, her documentary for Netflix, 13th. Um, if you look at that, um, she has a very distinct style. And, I'm, and I want to see 
how someone who transitions from that particular style to a major tentpole, which is what Wrinkle in Time is. I mean, it's it as much as it is an adaptation of a beloved classic, it also is meant to satisfy a it, it's a four it's supposed to be a four quadrant crowd pleaser, and it's supposed to satisfy the demands of shareholders. I mean, let's I mean we talk about film as art, but it's also a commercial enterprise, and so. What I I want to see that film succeed because I love seeing filmmakers grow and I love seeing filmmakers try new things and I love seeing filmmakers who normally wouldn't get a shot at doing something like that get a shot. So I'm really looking forward to seeing. Well, that. the commercials. I mean, if the commercials are anything to go by, if nothing else, she has a very beautiful eye for fantasy and sci-fi. And this is something we'll get into next week. But I actually feel like the the visual stylings of it are actually not that appealing to me because they look fairly generic compared to every other Disney grind like every other Disney factory young adult style film because it looks a, it looks like it has a very similar visual style to something like um Cinderella Alice uh the the uh the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland and um there's another one that I'm forgetting. Even Maleficent. There's like I can see those styles being um, basically making up the DNA of that film. And so what I'm wondering is how you marry that style, which admittedly it seems like it seems like she's been able to capture um, that style. I may not call it original, but at least she's being able to. Uh, she's working within the framework that she's being expected yeah. to. I just want to see if her style of framing, pacing, narrative flow, if that translates as well. Because, you know, I as as we talked last week whenever we were talking about Annihilation, a film which I was absolutely over the moon about, and the more that I think about it, the more I love it, um, we talked about the different type of directors that you may have behind a camera. And in the terms of Annihilation, it was definitely... Uh, Alex Garland came across as a author's director, and I feel like with uh, with with Moon and Source Code and Warcraft and with Mute, if you look at the way Duncan Jones works, he is, I feel, an actor's director. Um, yeah, he does pull out some good performances. He's, he's one of those people that I feel really drives performances and allows that to be kind of the centerpiece of what drives the film. Um, he's not... A, he's definitely not what I would consider to be just looking at his filmography, and this is just one man's opinion. I don't feel him to be a writer's director because his mm -hmm. his his focus is not on the narrative. His focus is on being drawn in by the performance. And whenever you have performances that are as good as the ones that he tends to get, that works. But whenever the shortcomings are as prevalent as they are in mute, it also becomes very... It, things start to fall apart quicker right. than they would um, otherwise. Because the problem with mute was not the acting. No, the problem with mute was not the acting nor the cinematography. No. It most, it's entirely based around the story. And I don't think that the elements of the story are bad. No, I let just me, think me... it was two or three drafts away from being probably a classic. Yeah, it was It was probably... It needed some revision. Like I... Like I Tell uh, I tell my students when I hand back a paper that doesn't quite get there, it just needs some revision. Right. It's, That's the sad part is that I think there was the the potential to be an actually super riveting, wonderful movie that that probably transcends the fact that it's a Netflix original. And I like the and I like so much of the setup. I like the idea of it's like oh okay, he our lead character comes from an Amish background. That's not something you see a whole lot of. Right. And then I liked the the idea of like an extended cold war in Germany that uh I mean 
and Duncan Jones has made no uh, no bones about the fact that uh, his major inspiration for the setup of this was Casablanca. And you can kind of see that. Um, and that idea in and of itself is really interesting to me. Yeah. Um, now, at the same time, it did, like I said, the narrative could have worked in any other setting and it would have been fine. And the fact that this world building was done, it, it, may, it frustrates me to a degree because I liked the world building being done. I liked the world they were building. I was very much in favor of the world they were building. Um, but I don't feel like it was built or explained or they didn't do enough with it to justify its own existence. Does that make no, sense? No, it makes... I, I didn't feel like the world was as lived in as they wanted us to think. Yeah, I... I, I it, there were things that I was picking up that I'm like, that's kind of an interesting idea. It's too bad they didn't flesh that out a little bit more. Right. They put a lot more in... They put a lot more effort into giving us this circular wheel-spinning narrative and not giving us enough time really coming to grips with the world that the narrative is set in. And obviously that's a balancing act. Um, it's the same thing that I had, you know, I still to this day have issues with the way Joss Whedon handled the uh, the politics of Firefly and Serenity. Um, it, you know, it basically was paid lip service to, but never really fleshed out the fact that it was, you know, there was this idea that there's a melding of... Um, Chinese and Western sensibilities, and that became a culture, and yet, you know, we never really see why or see that built upon and, or, or see you that many even Asian see... characters, for that matter. I was about to say, is they all speak Chinese, yet there's no... I don't think there's a Chinese actor in the bunch. I, I think there were some extras. Oh. Uh. Oh, you look in the background, there's your representation. Yeah, and I, I feel like that's... Uh... That's disheartening. One thing I did like about uh, Mute is I will say there what I, I liked the just abstract diversity of it. In that uh, we had the the character of Maxim who is eth ethnically ambiguous. He's Ger German slash Russian slash Baltic, but he's also played by a by a person of color. And then there's some underlings that are. British, but we also have people of color there. Um, then, of course, uh, the person who played uh, Nadia is a native German. So it's I liked that there was at least an, an attempt to... Well, there was a hint, actually, that there was a lot of uh, Afghanis living in Berlin after the war. Yeah, that, because, there was that, too. Because Nadira was Afghani. Yeah. Her mother was Afghani-speaking Pashto. Uh, mm -hmm. Her daughter was obviously half... Half, uh, half, half German. Afghani, half German, half... No, no, half... Uh, so, well, her dad was, oh, was yeah. Cactus Jack. He's not. He's not German. No, I'm. Oh, I was. I was talking about. Uh, I was talking about Nadia, not the daughter. Oh, 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 right, right. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. And but but if you look very closely at the food delivery, it's all Afghan food. Oh, see, I didn't pick yeah. up on that. Now that's. That's what I'm saying. They were eating yeah. Afghani food. There was. If you look at the design work, it said that the food is. So that's what I'm saying is that there was implication that there was a lot of... And I, th I feel like that's kind of, it's kind of interesting that they put so much detail into that but couldn't manage to get the script right because I'm one of those people that I don't care how nice something looks. If the script doesn't work, mm -hmm. I'm not there for it. And then there can be some films that ultimately don't look that great, but I'm like, you know what? The story works. The narrative flows. I'm okay with this. A good example would be, uh, we, uh, you know, right when whenever we kicked off the show with Proud Mary. That film was not exquisitely shot, but the narrative was sound. Yeah. And the acting in it was sound as well, whereas I feel like the acting and the aesthetics in this film were top-notch, but the script just... 
failed on so many different levels. See, and I, I think that they could have also taken a cue from Proud Mary in terms of follow your follow your protagonist almost the entire time. Mm -hmm. Because uh, Mary was basically the central focus of right. that film except for two scenes yeah and i and that was a stripped down movie i would argue almost too stripped down to the point that it almost didn't make feature length right but but i think you could have done something similar with this and shaved at least half an hour to 45 minutes off and that's one of the things that i love about film noir is film noir is supposed to be snappy and it's supposed to move very briskly and i felt like this film meandered just a little bit and too I, much i sometimes feel like in general that's a problem that film and literature have is that long equals good mm -hmm. when there's a lot to be said for simplicity and storytelling as well yeah i mean i mean I am, I'm a big fan of, and this is just me coming from a writer's perspective, uh, for those of you who have not listened to the show previously, um, I am an author of books with words, and uh, <laughs> I, I've written several different types of books. Um, I love writing fantasy, I love writing sci-fi, I love writing all different genres, and the thing is, whenever you sit down to write a story, the thing that you have to understand is you have to think about what is the story that I want to tell, how do I want to tell it? What's the best way to tell it? Um, uh, a few years ago, I wrote a Western just because I wanted to work within that genre. I was like, I well, I just want to... And it's funny because I consider that to be one of my lesser works. Like, I'm, I can be self-reflective in that way. Um, one of the reasons why I feel like that, that book did not do as well as I had hoped is because I did not make it Western enough for fans of the Western genre. And it being set within those trappings did not attract anybody who is not already attracted to Westerns. So it had no audience. <laughs> that having been said, I, I felt like whenever I sat down, I'm like, you know what? Whenever I look at uh, Western novels that I've seen or whatever I know about Westerns, they are not these 800-page George R.R. R. Martin uh, intricately crafted pieces of literature. It's a very point A to point B to point C type writing. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to try to keep this at a tight 200 pages. If I can keep it at a tight 200 pages and keep the narrative going and keep people like wanting to get to that. I feel like with Westerns, a lot of it is much like film noir. Everything is kind of centered around the climax, that idea of that, right. the good, the bad, and the ugly, the showdown, like that everything is driving towards that one moment. The same way that if you look at, um, my uh, my book series, um, the Madeline McAllister novels, those are very good. They're, they're yes, they're I, you know I sh I shouldn't play favorites, but they're my favorites. Um, I love writing that character, and that's one of those things where the if you know if if you're all about the destination, then get on a flight. the The thing about Maddie that I love writing is those stories, much like James Bond films and stuff like uh, the Bo and like Bourne movies, and even to a lesser extent, uh, something like John Le Carre. The idea is the journey is what's important. What happens along the way is important. And how it's resolved is, don't get me wrong, it's still a major part of what my goal is, but I want you to enjoy the ride. So I have a question. If yeah. you were going to edit this movie down, because like I said, Ryan and I had spent a full hour talking. Just talking about what you'd slice? Just talking about what we'd slice and cut down to make the story more streamlined and probably follow more of the noir storyline and maybe add in a little more uh, sci-fi for flavor. But... We thought that the, the Maxim and Nikki and Oswald and Luba stuff probably could have been completely cut out because it got absolutely nowhere. All it got was a photo yeah, that um, led right back to the very beginning. And as, as I mentioned earlier, 
sometimes circular things like that can can build tension and build suspense. And I think the it's, one I think the one thing that is important about to note about that is the, as it stands, if you cut that, you completely crumble the the movie because there that drives so much of what the narrative is right. and that but, there's this it's it's the red herring you know there needs to, I, it, I feel the red like herring wastes so much time it does i will say uh maybe not excise it but instead streamline it one of the things that what honestly what i would cut and i hate to say it because paul rudd's performance is so good but you need less alone time with paul rudd and justin Theroux. i appreciate what they were trying to do I get that they were trying to... I, I get what Duncan Jones was trying with that. I feel like it failed. Um, cut those scenes out so that those characters become background characters. That they only the only time we see them is when they cross paths with Alexander Skarsgård's character, with right. Leo. If you change the narrative to the point where they are peripheral, then that whole wild goose chase you can get a visceral reaction from your audience because they too should be frustrated the way that Leo is. I feel like... Right, but without without that, I mean, it, so much of it felt padded out. It uh, As it is, it and feels very padded out. It felt padded out and rather, well, you know, you, you do bring up good points, but the Maxim and Nikki stuff, I was just frustrated by the end of it because we'd wasted so much time with Paul Rudd and Justin Thoreau. Yeah, and I feel like... <laughs> So much of the Maxim stuff, I feel, was there to generate uh, character motivation and narrative uh, background for Paul Rudd. His whole deal with, I need to get my papers, I need to get out of this country. And I feel almost, almost like the narrative would have been better served if our point of view character had been Paul Rudd. I'll just go ahead and throw that out there. Because hmm. if it, it felt like the attention was more on him. There was more fleshed out about Paul Rudd than there was about Alexander Skarsgård. There which, was, but I was more which, interested in watching Leo's journey. I I, I liked Leo's journey, and, and I liked I liked the. Uh, we we should get into this. I liked the fact that they put an Amish person in there. I and I know that like we had mentioned earlier, they do get Amish wrong. For one thing, an Amish person probably would know how to use a smartphone, because they aren't complete luddites. They just use technology. Sparingly, but for the most part, they're not—they're not like oh, self. I mean, I'm sure that there's you're going to get some that are the more competitive. God loves me more because I don't do this, I don't do that. But that's those are going to be the outliers, and they're also pro medicine. Yeah. So in the so very that, beginning, that when they were like, of, I mean, it's not. I feel like they were trying to draw the comparison between those uh, those cases where like Jehovah's Witnesses would be against blood transfusion. Right, but that's not what because, but that's not what this culture right, is. Right, because if if the if that had happened then for the most part the Amish mom would have been like, "Yes, give my son this life-saving surgery." Yeah. They 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 cooperate with modern medicine. They see it as a gift from God and they say that that rejecting it is to reject the healing yeah, the, it's basically, that you're, God basically is you're, yeah. you're basically refusing the help of a benevolent God. Exactly. Is, That's how they would see it. So, yeah. so she was technically committing blasphemy. Yeah. In, so that the central caveat or the central premise of why our character is the way he is is based on a fallacy. If we're going to try to go for real world application, um, which I mean, it's fiction. You can it's fiction, do what you so, do as you will. But I, I still think I was like, 
It may is have, this some kind of... Like, it's I, an easy was, fix. It's an easy fix. All you got to say is he comes from a particular sect right. of the Amish community. And that's what I was wondering and, because I was presenting like... presenting it as like that, the scene in the diner where it's like, oh, you're Amish. Like, that's the way all Amish people are. No. Right, because that's, that's why I had been confused because I was like, that's... Why would this... I mean, he would have known what a cell... Uh, a, he would have known kind of the basics of a of a smartphone. He probably would have used a very simple one, but he still would have known the basics. Yeah. And I feel I, I feel like I'll let that slide because I feel like he was maybe going off of most people's perception of right. the Amish and he didn't want to take any more time in this already bloated film to explain. But again, it's still, it was a distraction to I'm, me. You are easily distracted. I am. He's like, oh, laser pointer. Um, that is true. I mean, it's, but it's a legitimate criticism. And it's one that if you look at how meticulous uh, Duncan Jones usually is, or at least seems to be. That's why I thought it was weird. Because I was like, you've, you've obviously done some research and did little details. Like we'd mentioned all the implications of having a large Afghani population. Things like that that were extremely subtle. He knows how to do subtle. Duncan Jones is not untalented. No, Duncan Jones is a... And is he, he I moved the microphone um, Duncan Jones is a capable just a just a capable creative ent entity in and of himself um it's I don't believe that he is like going out of his way to omit things I feel like maybe he was just Oh, I got a, I just got a text message from Ryan who listens to the show. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, he Ryan. said a good way to fix that too would have been to just have the surgery not work for him. Yeah, that that That's, that equally could It would have been an easy fix as well. Yeah. Wow, this is uh mute is not being well received. It's got a 35 meta score on Metacritic and it's only sitting at a 5.4 on IMDb. I wouldn't have been quite that harsh. Um, no, I think I gave it about three stars on Netflix because it looked beautiful, and I wouldn't mind if Netflix gave Duncan Jones more money to make more movies. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to see... I, I want more from Duncan Jones. This isn't one of those things where it's like, oh, he's failed his promise as a filmmaker. He must he must be set adrift on an ice block to live out so the rest of a, his days. Here's a question for you. Do you feel like maybe if he had waited a little longer and not worked on this while grieving for his dad who died in a very prolonged and painful way and not only that but being a public figure himself right and then the son of a of a legendary public figure probably didn't have much in the way of being able to grieve privately i and that's something that i wonder if it can impact your creativity because we had talked earlier about how uh tignataro and Patton oswald have talked very openly about how after losing loved ones that they bombed several times on stage before they finally were able to do that triumph. Pe you know, we always tend to look at people like Vanessa Hudgens, who lost her father to cancer right before she was set to do Grease Live. Yeah. And she nailed it. Mm. She was amazing. Like, I don't even really like Grease all that much, but I watched bits and pieces of her performance. She did a beautiful job. And she should be celebrated for doing that. She absolutely should. But, that's, but I but still that's, think... That, is, that isn't the norm. But Most I, people not, do not deal with trauma in that way. Right. But what I'm saying is, is I think the expectation sometimes is that that's how you deal with it, that you go, you immediately go out and you do something big and beautiful and bold and triumphant, well, but like no that, one ever talks about I feel like about that's part of the culture that we have with regard to celebrity and right. um, just the idea of the creative mind. There's this idea, so many people, and 
I'm guilty of this as well, coming from a film background and just being a nerd and a geek in, in general. We tend to put these people on a pedestal. We right. tend to almost deify them in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you would be looking at the way that certain people talk about um, in the wake of Guillermo del Toro's Oscar win, the way that people like hold him up as this standard of like, oh, he's he's a master of his craft and this, that, and the other. And I'm just... Whenever, whenever that man has a minor misstep, like if you look at Crimson Peak, um, which I didn't care for, it's like there are people who take that almost as an offense. Yeah, it's like oh, our master has failed us, and you know, it's, and I, I talked a little bit about this. It mirrors once again. I'm going to make this about Star Wars. Yes. Um. So I think that's part of the reason that there was such a backlash against Last Jedi, is the idea that. Our heroes can never fail us. And to some degree, people look at writers, film directors, musicians, actors, um, comic book creators, musicians, all of this. We look at them as these infallible heroes. And whenever they stumble and whenever they do something that doesn't quite work for us, it hits us like somewhere deep within our soul. And we have this visceral reaction to recoil and say, it just feels wrong. And... I look at what Duncan Jones has done here, and I feel like, yes, there were some missteps, but at the same time, there was so much that was also done right, and he did so many things correctly as a director that I'm not really going to fault him for it. Me neither. I'm, well, like I said, I and, also know And the- also, object, objectively, working through that trauma, coming off of losing your father, and, you know, coming off of losing, uh, of being in the public eye during all of that, it's it's... It's a lot, and I would not put that... No. Uh, I, I would not... You know, I, I give Duncan Jones a lot of leeway for that. Now, obviously, the thing about it is, this script has been in development for several years, prior to the release of Moon, in fact. Right. And so, somewhere along the way, prior to anyone, even David Bowie's struggle with cancer, he could have put another polish on the script. So, there, I feel like... Yes and no. I give him some leeway, how, but how long was Bowie sick for? Do you know? He, uh, from what I understand, he knew that he was terminal for about a year. Is what I is what I recall. Right, but you can also be chronic before you turn terminal. And I don't know That's if I don't know if he was aware prior to his diagnosis. I don't know. I'm like I I'm a David Bowie fan, but I am not one of those people who like followed compulsively. Oh no, the it's fine. Like I, I I honestly didn't look it up because it made me feel creepy. Yeah. It's, um, it's not something it's not something you want to look up. It's it's not. It's uh it's you know it, it's still kind of painful to think about losing Bowie and uh you know the manner that he went out knowing it and then He's like, you know what? If I'm going to go out, I'm going to leave one last piece mm. of lasting. I mean, like, nine this... more pieces because there's eight more albums coming out. Yeah. But he's like, I'm I'm going, this is my legacy. I'm not going to be forgotten and I'm not going to let this define, uh, I'm not going to let my death define me. I'm going to let my art define me, even if my uh, art is defined in part by my experience dying. Which, if you think about it, that is an interesting thing to dive into like knowing you know knowing about your your mortality and embracing that and channeling that into your art that's something that very few artists are able to do and those that are able do they want to do it it's just such a heady concept yeah do they want to do it they feel like they have to but again like i said the, the so there was there was i i understand that the duncan jones made this while inside of a pressure cooker even if yeah. it was a, a years-long passion project it's still I get it. Was in production and part being... of me thinks that this, like this, was for him 
um, a part of his recovery, a part oh, of his yeah. he was his it, first was, movie. it was it was like, you know what? I've got a script. It's a passion project. It's ready to go. Let's do this. This is going to keep me sane. And if that's if if it was one of those things where this helped him get to a happier, better, healthier place, then what we got is better than we deserve. Well, and I think that's did it help him? I think is probably more important than were we entertained. Yeah, um, that's. I 100% agree with you. And we we had brought up to when we talked about this uh, off air, this was also the first movie where he used his father's music. And he also dedicated it to his dad at the very end. Yeah. Which is, it's it's really cool. It's a nice gesture. And ultimately, I've, I've said a lot of negative things about the film. But that having been said, I've seen worse movies, so I don't want to pile on it. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I just don't, I don't like it. I don't hate it. it. I, I just think that there's some structural problems with it. But I want to. Th- I want good things for Duncan Jones's career. And I also accept that sometimes you're going to have missteps. That's an inevitability in, in working in creative industry. It's it's I like mean, I, you know I'm still very I'm still very very intrigued in what he might do next. Right. And you and I are both working creatives. You've written books that you're not super happy about. Mm-hmm. I've definitely had shows where I've gotten off stage and been like, Am I ever going to get to set foot on stage again? How is that bad? You know. Yeah. But I've also had shows where I've stepped off stage and been like, I'm going to do 20 more of these. You know, it's it's a a cycle. Yeah, I mean, everybody has a good everybody has good days and bad days. Um, for people like me, who you know, as as a teacher, every day I walk into the classroom, and sometimes some lessons work, sometimes they don't. But I get to move on and build from that. And there's no lasting reminder of that. But whenever I look at those books that just didn't quite work and when Duncan Jones and other creatives look at films that, you know, maybe they aren't as happy with it as they could be. And I don't, I I hope that, I mean, Duncan Jones should be very proud of what he produced because this is leaps and bounds above what you would a couple of years ago. If you talked about a straight to streaming or straight to video release, this is leaps and bounds above that. I'll say this. Matt Frewer is still alive. If Duncan Jones ever wants to throw his hat into a Max Hedrum reboot, I think he would be a good fit. That might be. That actually might be a good. I mean, idea. I've I've been watching rewatching the original run through, and it's still pretty prescient. And it's funny, like I, I don't know if it's just you or if it's kind of a weird like kismet kind of thing, but I've been seeing a lot of posts about Max Headroom like on the various social circles that I run in on the internet, and I'm like, is this some sort of like weird like undercurrent in the like weird psyche of the universe that's pushing everybody to revisit Max Headroom? Like I don't know. My my uh my header image on Facebook's been Max Headroom for years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are just about out of time. And I, one more thing real yeah. fast is that if I, I feel the same way about Ava DuVernay, too. If I don't like A Wrinkle in Time, ultimately, because I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. I'm hoping I do. I still want to see good things for her, too. And here's like, the thing. I want to see let's, awesome let's things say that Let's say that I don't like Wrinkle in Time. That doesn't mean that I don't want to see her next film. It may be that big budget tent poles just aren't for her. And there are some directors that... that that's not what they do. That's yeah. not what they do best. And that's okay. Maybe they're better suited doing something else. And I would rather people do what is suited to them than try to fit them into a box. Yeah. All right. So we are almost out of time. Once again, I do want to plug um, KPFT is having a donation drive right now. Um, you can go to kpft.org and click the donate now button or go to pledge.kpft.org. Um, just check that out. Donate what you can. There are rewards for certain, uh, dif- different levels of um, pledges, and we would love to have your support. We thank you again for listening to the show. It means the world to us. Um, 
you can find us on social media. Our Instagram is at Pop and Schlock Live, and our Twitter account is at Pop Schlock Pod. Um, my personal Twitter is at Am I Right or Wrong, and you can find Meredith at uh, at Meredith Nudo N U D O, like Japanese noodles. Yeah, actually, funny story about that, but uh, it's for another day. <laughs> we'll get into that at another time. Anyway, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, next week, as I mentioned, we will be back talking about A Wrinkle in Time. Um, if uh, if you have any questions or comments or things that you would like us to share on the air, please feel free to uh, send us a message on Twitter or drop us a comment on Instagram. Or if you, uh, follow the, uh, if you follow our updates on Facebook or the blog, drop us a line there. We will talk about it. We or are... send us a text message if you have our phone numbers. We do actually get texts in the middle of shows sometimes, and if they're yeah, I'd like to get a text. About. I'd like to get a text in the middle of the show that's not from my wife. Um, hey, Tori's cool. <laughs> Tori's cool, but uh, she's also wildly inappropriate sometimes, and she's like trying to get me to break on the air, and it's not gonna happen, Tori. Anyway, uh, thank you guys for listening. We will see you next time. Mm-hmm.